Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing well, Mike. Now, uh, careful listeners and viewers may have noticed that we changed the name of our podcast to the Macomb Israel uh, Teacher's Lounge podcast. That is because we now work for... Macomb, which is a project at the Jewish Agency. Alan, can you tell us about Macomb? Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, Mike, it's a project at the Jewish Agency that was really set up um, to really explore, you know, Israel and to teach Israel to, um, the, I guess, English speakers, the English-speaking world mostly. Um, so through that, they um, design educational programs, trainings, and materials that help make sense of how we can best be a free people in our land. That's like kind of the tagline of really trying to get into um, what Israel means today and how best to get that message across for those who don't necessarily live here. Uh, or, or in our case, with our gap year um, project, which has come also over, not just us, um, for those who maybe spend time in Israel uh, a year or, or less. Um, and so we'll have a future episode where we'll ask uh, Abby Dalber Stern to come in, who's the director of Macomb, and maybe some of the other educational staff, and we'll talk more about the educational vision and um, what Macomb is about and what we hope to do here. But what's exciting is that our whole team has moved over, um, so that also includes the podcast. And that really won't have that much effect for you who are listeners um, because nothing will change all that much um, in terms of the podcast. We are joined today by a special guest who Alan will introduce. Would you introduce him, Alan? Sure, Mike. Um, we're here with Kalev Bendor, who has uh, graciously agreed to um, join us today on the podcast. Kalev is the director of research at BICOM. Um, and uh, I'd like to ask him to, first of all, tell us a little bit what BICOM is about, and then we'll jump in. Sure. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me here. BICOM is a British-based Middle East think tank. We write about Israel and the region for a variety of audiences. Uh, so elections, Gaza, uh, Palestinian things in general, Israeli society, uh, Iran, Hezbollah, all sorts of things. BICOM.org.uk, if anyone wants to uh, check it out. A lot of really, really nice resources there. Okay, so today we wanted to, now that we're jumping back into sort of catching up in the news, we wanted to catch up on what's going on sort of on the other side of the uh, of the aisle of the wall, what do we want to say, in the Palestinian world. On the side of the green line. I guess so, on the side of the green line. There have been some pretty big news stories. that, And, and we also want to uh, sort of look into our hazy, hazy crystal ball and talk about what these events imply for the future. So we had a pretty major scandal at UNRWA. We had a uh, we had a demolition of homes in Surbachar, and we have all this sort of shuttle diplomacy going on now to lay down the track for the Trump administration's political peace plan. Where should we start, Alan? Uh, let's start with the Trump peace plan. Trump peace plan it is. So uh, Jared Kushner's been bopping around in the capitals talking to different people. Do we have a sense of where this is going? Are there clues? What do you think? Who's, who's got the uh, finger on the pulse of the plan? These things, I don't know why they, they, they have to have official unveiling, but we already have a bunch of uh, sort of breadcrumbs laid out for us in the, in the media. Yes, I mean, we 
wrote it back in December a type of Middle East forecasting paper that, that turned into a type of predictive type of thing, which, which I'm not keen on. I'm not keen on predicting. But one of the things we said was that the Trump peace fund would not be unveiled in 2019. So we're getting, we're getting nearer to the end. And I'm kind of in two minds. On the one hand, I'd like to be correct in terms of the prediction. But on the other hand, I think it'd be interesting to, to see. I think... Oh, I don't know. I think me being right is much more important than peace in the region, don't you? Well, um, Alan and I were joking, actually, about the, the, the new elections that we said, you know, for the country, a disaster. But for Israeli educators, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. So it's, uh, it's kind of that, that balance. I think, I think there is a window after which the Trump peace plan will, will be unlikely to be unveiled. And that is around November slash the end of the year, one will be getting into kind of US presidential uh, turf. And any controversial type plan may kind of undermine Trump's support with the evangelicals, which he's very keen on. So we are now in August. We have Israeli elections, as people know, mid-September. There will be a kind of six-week, potentially a six-week period where whoever gets the most amount of seats or whoever is most likely to form a government will be given that time. Initially, the Trump administration had wanted to wait for a new Israeli government to present but the window's slowly closing, so um, maybe it'll be before. We, we don't Here's the big question. Is it going to be a two-state solution or not? I mean, I think Kushner, uh, who's Trump's son-in-law and his kind of special advisor, and David Friedman, who's the ambassador, have, have been quite explicit that they prefer not to use such terms. I think Kushner said, well, Trump said... Two state, one state, I don't care, but to try and move a bit deeper. Um, you know, Kushner said, we don't find these phrases particularly useful. A state means one thing to the Palestinians, a state means something else to the Israelis. I think, I mean, we actually did a paper about this. I think regardless of what it will be, and there's administration comments on refugees that we can discuss, or Jerusalem, or settlements, Bush, Clinton, and Obama were very, very different presidents, but they all had a similar perception of how a final status solution should look. And the Trump administration's approach is, is very, very different. I think we can say, you know, there, there's all sorts of things, maybe this, maybe that, but it will certainly be very different to anything we've seen before. So here, should I guess what I think that, you want to hear what I think the difference is? Sure. I think that they're going to propose semi-autonomy in the Palestinian zone, with shared oversight, but most more over under Jordanian oversight than Israeli oversight. They're going to shift the responsibility for Palestinian development to the Jordanians. That's what they're going to suggest. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, again, with these predictions, we'll have to wait and see. What, what do we see that is really different, I think, is this, their approaches, this economic talk. Let's leave the let's leave the kind of um, political di diplomacy aside. That's that using these terms of two state, one state, this and that. And let's talk economics. How can we make the life better on the ground, um, you know, financially and materially? And then that will lead to the next stage. And I, that's already been happening. There was the over the summer there was the conference in where is it Bahrain, in Bahrain, and um, now there's been more talk about economics. Uh, so that seems to be, at least if there's no, if there hasn't been an official launch, and it may not be launched, and we'll wait to see if uh, Kalev's prediction comes true. But certainly things are being done, and that is really on this front, I think. Right, but the, what we used to call shuttle diplomacy, 
diplomacy back in the day where you jump from capital to capital. That's what Jared Kushner has been doing. And he's been talking of heads of state of different players in the region, which is also somewhat different. Usually in the Israeli-Palestinian issue, you don't talk to the Saudi government, the Jordanian government, the Egyptian government. He's going to specific heads of state and state departments and getting them involved in it. So I think I, that that's partially why, first of all, I do think that's different. Uh, you know, James Baker got the whole Arab world together by doing something similar to fight Saddam Hussein. But no one's ever done something quite like that with the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue. And that's why I think he, I think that the push is going to be to make the oversight of Palestinians not Israeli. That's sort of, let's, let's, it's, it's going to be less about let's make clear demarcations and create clear autonomy. It's that since we're not ready for clear autonomy, let's sort of shift who's overseeing them because Israelis don't want to rule over that many Palestinian Arabs. Well, I think, I think one thing for certain, the Jordanians and the Egyptians are petrified of this plan. Uh, they're very, very worried. The Egyptians are worried that somewhere, somehow, it will include Sinai, um, which they very much see as an integral part of, of, of Egypt. Um, I think the Jordanians are worried about Jerusalem. Uh, and the king is also under a lot of domestic pressure. Uh, so he's kind of caught between his, his economic and diplomatic need to be close to the Trump administration, um, but the kind of popular public opinion which is not willing to kind of give up anything in terms of Palestinian rights I think they're they're very worried about what will be in the plan if and when it's it's presented I, I think par that's partially what my theory is based on actually the fact that we're getting these these like these nervous uh, spidey sense tingling signals from the Jordanians I think a country that is whose population is essentially Palestinian for the most part, for them to have oversight over these Palestinians erodes the distinction between Jordanians and Palestinians. So that while it does, it, I, I think that's partially why they're getting nervous. They feel like the Palestinians are going to be, they don't want them under their aegis because it blurs Jordanian identity. And so I think, I think the nervousness isn't just I think it is obviously those things, Jerusalem and all those other things. But I think there's also, look, Jordan is, I guess Jordan and Saudi Arabia are the only countries that after, when, when those new countries were created around and after World War II, all of those countries that were set up by the West, by Britain and France, were all overthrown. And new Arab governments took over from the colonially appointed governments, except for Saudi Arabia and Jordan. The, this family, the Abdullah family, has been walking this tightrope for a long time. So the tightrope seems to be getting a little shaky. And, uh, and, 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 and so those signals are making me wonder if Jordan isn't, gonna be, isn't being asked by Kushner to play a bigger role. And the Palestinians, how are they reacting to all this? I, I thought fairly, I was surprised. They're not, you're getting less, at the beginning there was just that flat out like, we don't want to have anything to do with anything. And now you're getting these sort of feelers of, I don't know, let's see. Let's see, you're getting people, spokesmen in the PA who are saying, well, we, don't, you know, we shouldn't comment yet, which is new. So there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know yet, obviously, that uh, I actually saw a, a, a warming of the, the response from what was initially just ice cold. So now it's only very cold. Yeah, <laughs> it's still, it's still, 
Well, you know, as we've talked about before on the podcast, like they, they have no reason to be feel have warm feelings towards the Trump administration. And and their their political situation is well, we'll get to the other yeah. the, the the UNRWA scandal. Let's yeah. let's okay, so let's transfer over there. They're they're in a really weird situation. Can you just quickly go over in including defunding UNRWA claims by Switzerland, Belgium, Holland. There are countries now saying, well, we're just not going to contribute to UNRWA anymore. I mean, yeah, it's very bizarre because if you look, I believe it was last summer we did the episode on the Trump administration's defunding of UNRWA for ideological, political reasons. And all of a sudden, this summer, there's a big scandal in UNRWA um, that an internal UN ethics report came out basically claiming a lot of really bad things about the current administration in UNRWA. Um, from what is UNRWA? Un- uh, United Nations Relief and Works Agency for the Palestinians. It's the Palestinian-specific p- um, refugee organization within the UN. There's a UN uh, refugee organization for all the refugees, and then UNICEF. there's yeah, which is then there's a specific for the Palestinians, which is UNRWA. Um, and they basically have just fell into scandal, like we know in many different uh, circumstances, different places um, that have to do with nepotism and some even some misconduct and money and uh, whatever. Do we have to go into it? But the the result of that is that a number of major funders, country funders, are now freezing or even pulling out their money from from funding it which will put tremendous pressure on Palestinian authority and and Palestinians lives particularly because they rely on that money as part of their economy whatever it is that trickles through and the reason they're talking about defunding and maybe finding another organization for that resources to Palestinians to go to is if UNRWA is completely mismanaging all our contributions and we're trying to help Palestinians. Why should we? Ju- why should it just be that trickle? We need another organization that's going to be competent. Is that a fair? W- yeah. Which I mean, and that is the UN's interaction with the Palestinian world. Palestinian schools in the West Bank and Gaza. Palestinian. I, 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 just, I would like to point out one thing, though, because we, we're often very, very critical of UNRWA and the UN, especially from the Israel Zionist side. You know, um, and we really should point out that it was the UN and internal. Um, a report from the UN, which has really sparked this. So they're, they're not trying to cover up anything um, in the big organization. Well, our, uh, you know, I'll just talk for myself. Yeah, I think it's very important. I will talk for myself. Well, I criticize UNRWA for specifically, uh, before I knew about this horrific mismanagement, to put it mildly, possibly criminal mismanagement, uh, what I criticized them for was teaching the Palestinian masses that they will have a right of return, that they will have millions of them be able to move into Israel and become citizens, which would destroy the state of Israel. That's irresponsible. The United Nations, we often criticize because whether it's different departments or even the General Assembly, will condemn Israel disproportionately to countries that really do horrible, so they'll, they'll and often falsely accuse Israel. But we also have to remember, and just to echo your point, the United Nations officially recognizes Israel as a state with a right to exist and its legal right to defend itself. And so when it unfairly criticizes Israel, we rightly become angry. But let's not forget that the UN, and here the UN did an internal review of UNRWA and found that it, they were... Mismanaged at the least, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's re- that's really bad for, for the Palestinians. Now... They, they, there's been an approval of how many new Palestinian homes in Area C? It's like uh, 700? 
700 new Palestinian homes in Area C, which is unusual for the Netanyahu administration. A minority of Palestinian Arabs live in Area C in the West Bank. Most Palestinians live in Area A, Area B, under Palestinian Authority administration. But there are hundreds of thousands who live in Area C, and they are now going to be able to expand. Area C is where the Israeli military is the administration, and that's where all Jews who live in the West Bank live. And so in addition to the 700 Palestinian building approvals, there will come along with it thousands of Jewish home approvals. Thoughts, gentlemen, about this new, uh, in this weird, shaky government that we have that, that's gone through? Well, there's an interesting thing here that as, I mean, Netanyahu is, is prime minister, he's also defense minister, and the decision for these things is not a security. Well, officially, he isn't anymore, but he is. I guess, I guess he's... Isn't Katz? No, Katz is, Katz is foreign. Foreign minister. Oh, foreign minister. Oh, so he's just totally defense minister. That's a good call. I got mixed up. So, so the decision to build homes in Area C is, is a defense ministry decision. It's not a security cabinet decision. So people were saying that, you know, listen, it's election time. Um, debates on, on the right do not normally promote allowing Palestinian homes to be either built or to, to get retroactive uh, 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 permits or whatever. So Netanyahu used the security cabinet as kind of political cover to, to do something where, where actually it was, they, he, didn't need their, he didn't need their agreement or their permission, it was him. Um, he did it to kind of get in, to kind of give a, a gesture to the Trump administration, but he had this kind of domestic political hot potato that he managed to try and, and do via the security cabinet itself. Well, um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's a hard one. I'm not really sure what to think about it, I'll be honest with you. But it's an interesting technique. Yeah. People say, you know, you know, if you're not giving Palestinians permits, why are you giving Jews permits? And here he's saying, okay, I'll give some Palestinians permits. And I'll give also more Jews permits. Yeah, but at the, uh, I mean, if we we'll, you know can bring at the same time, um, there were uh, the whole demolition, house demolitions are also uh, an issue. Um, so, for example, some of those, um, from what I understand, some of those um, permission to build in the settlement areas were in illegal outposts. Um, but at the same time, uh, the government destroyed, I think it was 12 homes in a Jerusalem neighborhood of Sur Bachar, which is, it's a funny Jerusalem neighborhood because on the one hand, it's on the Jerusalem side of the security barrier, not the West Bank side. Um, on the other hand, it is administered by the Palestinian Authority. It's considered to be in Palestinian Authority territory. I don't know if it's, I guess it's B. Area A. Is area A? Area A. Area A. Um, so it's in Jerusalem, it's within the Jerusalem municipality, it's within the, the, the security barrier of, of Israel territories, and yet it's uh, area A of the Palestinians. Uh, but Israel decided that the homes were built too close to the barrier without permission, which is a weird thing because the Palestinian authorities should be able to give the permission there, no? Uh, that's why I'm confused by it even, right? Uh, I mean, that would make sense. If it's Area A, they have both security right. and administrative control, so they should be able to... Until you talk about security issues, and then the government, that's always the, the clitch, you could say, that they can always call the security card the joker. Um, well, that's why I thought its proximity to the wall was the key. Yeah. Um, so that's what they did. The key element was proximity to the wall, so they destroyed those homes. So you, you see these political, uh, I mean, 
ping pong balls, you know, kind of flying all over the place. I mean, I guess that sort of happens also in election time. It also happens with the complicated uh, situation we have. Um, and it's very, it, it, I, I just find it very confusing. I, I mean, I'm being clear about it because it seems very confusing. Um, uh, the, the situation of Sorbacher itself. Well, I think it's confusing for two reasons. One of them is because, as we're saying, like, the rules aren't clear of how, who decides what. And so people make it up as they go along. So that's, so there's, there is no set, as English speakers, we're used to coming from countries where there are more, there's a, there's a, right, such as, the, such as the defense minister gets to decide who gets to build in, in right. Area C. <laughs> and the other reason is, I think, I think it's confusing, is that because what we're, when we watch these tactics, there's no strategy. Like, okay, what is this leading to? Well, nobody knows. And so when you see people doing things, and you're like, well, what does that do? Where does that take us? And the answer is, mm. So it's, it's all very confusing. Okay, so you knock down those homes, and... Mm, I mean, there's plenty of illegal building by Arabs. There's plenty of illegal building by Jews. Right. I mean, I guess we have to stress that. Also, when we're talking about this, this kind of so, so the Israeli government decides in Area C who gets to build through the defense minister. So that also means Palestinian building in Area C, right? So again, there's all these different overlapping administrations and and rules that are malleable, I suppose. And I suppose after the election, the coming in defense minister could change that rule. No. Yeah, and 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 the um, right. I mean, if there's no, and and I, and I think part. If you look back, sorry, if you look back, right during the Obama years, and they did the freeze on the building. So you know, the freeze on settlement building was houses that had been approved. Um, in a lot of cases, depending on what stage of building they were in, um, if I if I remember correctly. So uh, yeah, it was like a ten month freeze early in the Obama. Yeah, these aren't like legal. I, I mean, I, I mean, I guess they're legal decisions, but they're not written in stone, you could say. Well, they're, they're legally implemented policy decisions. They don't have clear, they're not, it's not by the Knesset, it's not legislative, it's not a legal act, it's a policy act. And so there's a lot of... And, oh, and right, so it's not by the land authorities. Right. With the same thing with the, the, the houses in Sorbacha are not, it's not a land authorities issue, it's a, it's a military, it's a security issue. Well, especially when the builder built without permits, so that means that they have no... What bill permits? The permits are given by Palestinians, not Israelis. It's Area A. Oh right, in Surbacher. Man, it's yeah. confusing. So in Surbacher, you think they did have? I thought they did. I thought it was Ill- the reporting yeah. called it illegal building, which I just yeah. assumed meant it had no permits, which they may not do a lot. They could be that the PA doesn't oversee permits carefully and just allows a lot of you know could be very loose with yeah. permits. That wouldn't surprise me if in Ramallah, they're not keeping close eye on who's building what. I mean, I have plenty of neighbors. I won't say go into it any far who build without permits, parts of their homes or even their whole homes. So um, it's a Middle Eastern uh, tactic when you want to. It is Middle Eastern. And when the, when the bureaucracy is oppressive and sometimes really tortures you, so it's very common for people right. to, and they kind of expect you to, to, to play the system. What about, what about uh, BB announcing that to, uh, you know, during this political season, as he visits different places in uh, the West Bank, Yudan Shimron, that Jew- all Jewish settlements will continue to be here forever. Like, that was very strange political language. Obviously, he's, as Israeli politics turns, the right assumes more and more control, he's worried about his right flank, so saying something like that. But that's very provocative sort of newish language. David Harvitz wrote a long piece about how things have really, really shifted. Um, 
and the fact that they're just talking about whatever that means, that they're talking about that the Jewish settlements, 450, whatever it is, thousand Jews, two and a half million Arabs live in the West Bank, and that to resolve that issue, you won't have to move any Jews, which, let's be honest, is kind of... Did any of us think that large numbers of Jews were going to be moved from many of these places? Can you ima- Let me ask a question this way. Can you imagine a prime minister and a Knesset and a government pulling hundreds of thousands of Jews from their home? Because out of the 450,000, let's say 300, 350,000 live inside areas that you, you were talking about the, the Clinton and the Bush and the Obama plan all look pretty similar. So the big clusters of neighborhoods would end up in Israel. So you wouldn't have to move 450,000 Jews for a Palestinian area. But you would have to move tens of thousands who are too far east. Did anyone think any Israeli government... When people talk about, especially in the pro-Israel world, when people talk about, oh, the Palestinians aren't serious about a two-state solution, I, I, I think, I don't know if it's a dirty secret or... I don't think any Israeli politician or prime minister ever wanted to move tens of thousands of Jews. No, moving 8,000 Jews from Gaza was traumatic. Moving, how many people were in Yamit back in 82? I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of people, but it was traumatic to the nation. Uh, Multiplied by tens of thousands, was that ever going to really happen? So I think, I think people did imagine it would happen, but I think, as you say, Gaza was extremely traumatic. There were eight and a half thousand people who were who were were evacuated from their homes, and on the uh, east side of the security barrier, there are, depending on how you draw the percentages, whatever, we're looking at eighty, ninety, a hundred, a hundred and a bit thousand people, um, many of whom are the more ideological type of people. You know, there's a lot of different people who live in the West Bank. I think the two largest settlements are actually ultra-Orthodox settlements. They're near the Green Line. So there's lots of different types of people who live in the West Bank, but... Um, well, many people live in the West Bank for economic or social reasons, and then the further east you go, the more you lean exactly. towards... Exactly. So it's a... I think it's a difficult sell, and I think it always was a difficult sell, but I think if you were... Just kind of getting domestic, domestic politics for a bit. If you look at the kind of blue and white type thing which is it's far from left um i think what they're saying is listen for the time being we don't see uh, an opportunity for a two-state solution but we need to try and keep the window open what is keeping the window open well it means not necessarily extending settlements that are in these isolated areas it means strengthening the palestinian authority um so i think there's you know there's a spectrum between withdrawal and binational reality and just to go back to a point you made before, what's the strategy? Okay, so 6,000 homes for Jews, 700 homes for Palestine. Where's it moving? I don't think Netanyahu wants a binational state. He certainly said he hasn't. Um, I think he's smart enough to realize that would be disastrous. But if you're not going to evacuate any settlements, then what's, what's the vision? Um, Probably election time is not the time to talk about visions, but I think that's I think that's lacking. I think people need you know because if you don't have a vision, then you're just doing ad hoc tactics. Then it doesn't really lead anywhere. Or or you could argue that he does have a vision. He just doesn't want to articulate it because it's not politically palatable, and his vision is greater Israel, and that will somehow deal with the pop, 
We'll figure out a way to deal with the Palestinians. That he has no vision. What will we do with the Palestinian population? I don't know. But my vision is that everybody will really leave there. Because every tactic he chooses does seem to make the two-state solution less and less viable. I personally do not think that Netanyahu is in the same camp as the annexationalists, as the people who... I know you were discussing this in the past, either to annex C or annex everything, and, and I, I don't think Netanyahu was there. In the past, even when Likud, in a kind of populist-type way, were, were pushing in that direction, he was standing in a different place. A couple of things have changed. Firstly, he was standing in a different place when it was the Obama administration. He was worried that any sort of move to annex would have big international consequences, and when we say international, we mean American. Um, it is deeply unclear that that would still be the case. I don't think the administration would be happy, but the Trump administration is different to all administrations in the past. The other thing that I think has changed is that Netanyahu is extremely worried about his political uh, career. And if he were to get uh, enough seats for a coalition for 61, which current polls don't show him, one of the things that the right-wing party to Likud are going to demand is, is annexationist stuff. So in a situation where you need that for a coalition, and when it's the Trump administration who are pretty ambivalent about it, then the Netanyahu of 2019 is very different potentially to the Netanyahu of 2015. But I think in his, in his heart, whatever that means, in his heart, he's not in the same political place as the greater land of Israel ideologues. Yeah, I don't know if he's got the same... Uh, ideology is the head of like the Yesha Council or 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 you know people on the extreme right, but functionally, uh, partially for survival, I think that's I think that's where he. I, I don't know where his heart is, but I think his tactics show where his where he wants things to lead. Um, I would uh, say that the most kind of depressing thing was your comment that election time isn't the time for visions. I think that that's where we've come in the 21st century with the elections. I, and that's why I find so hard, who am I going to vote for? Because I look for a vision. I think a lot of people, that's the depression we feel with um, this kind of political uh, meanderings that's going on is because the vision isn't there. Like people... Uh, uh, well, it's a mixture of we don't hear we don't have a clear vision. No one's telling right. us with a clear, and also the the utter dysfunction of you know we're just spinning wheels. We're going to redo an election, and so far polls are showing the results won't be significantly different. And even we see even in the right these big blocks that we talked about last week are coming together not because of a vision but because of practical politics of getting more seats. But more of that, I guess, uh, as we get closer to the elections. It's true. But all of that being said, a I think the dysfunction here. Well, you know, we were born, all three of us, in countries that I think are suffering much more serious dysfunction. Obviously, you know, not only, obviously, Eng England's in a Brexit problem, but America's undergoing horrible problems, you know, in, in Texas and in uh, Ohio. So that's where the world is. And I think that Israel is, if anything, maybe a little less structurally... You're supposed to be the positive one. You're supposed to be know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying so hard. To, we always try to end days. on a positive. It is the nine days, so we're allowed to be a little bit uh, uh, more uh, um, subdued. I, yeah. <laughs> Look, but we're all we're all happy to be here, right? Like we're all happy and proud to be here, whatever dysfunction it is. But but it's it's our, it's our dysfunction. Right.
But also for, for many years, people would look at the UK and they'd say, wow, it's so stable. Israelis would joke, wow, the UK is so politically stable. And, and it was for many years. Yeah. But uh, uh, the, the Brexit genie has, has created this uh, dynamic that is very, very difficult to see. Whichever way you look, uh, there are major, major problems. Um, I'd, I'd rather have our dysfunction. I would, I would choose, even if it wasn't ours, even if it wasn't Jewish, I would choose our dysfunctions over those. So... Hooray for our dysfunction. That's a nice way to end. Uh, I guess. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Kalev. I hope you come back again. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. And thank you, Alan. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Makom Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and pass it along to your friends. <laughs>